This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is the All Access Supplementary Podcast. So instead of doing a regular episode today, we are very busy. Tony is going to the Star Trek Picard premiere this week. We've got a lot going on. So we decided that we would release today the interview that I did with John Billingsley a while back. It's a great interview. It's kind of evergreen because it's just talking about mostly Enterprise, but also his new charity. We covered it on the site, but there's more to it when you listen to it. And he's just a delightful guy. So it's worth listening to. And I spoke to him before Trek Talks 2 happened, which is the big fundraising event. It's a big all-day marathon of Star Trek panels to raise money for the Hollywood Food Coalition. And we decided to keep this part in, one, because you can still go watch it, and he teases a lot of the conversations that are coming up, and two, because it's such a good cause that the way he speaks of it, he speaks of it with great passion and a lot of knowledge. And I felt that that was a really important thing to share with everybody. So even though we're not going over the news of the week, there is news of the week. There's stuff from Terry because there always is um, <laughs> and more out there. When this podcast goes up, there should be an early review of the first six episodes of Star Trek Picard season three up. I'm bringing in my friend Mark Altman from the- A ringer. You're bringing uh, in a ringer. Bringing in a ringer who's also had the opportunity to see the six episodes which have been released to the press. And I still haven't seen what he has to say, but I'm excited to read it. And it will be spoiler free, folks. So don't worry that you can't read it because it's going to give away stuff you don't want to know about. And then once we get into it on a weekly basis, as normal, my weekly, extremely long, detailed recap <laughs> reviews will be coming out for each of the 10 episodes, along with Lori and myself doing our podcast reviews. So my, my first recap review will be on the 16th when it drops, and then All Access Star Trek on the 17th. So here's a little setup for John Billingsley just to get things started. So the first thing I talked to him about was why it's so important to him to combine the efforts for the Hollywood Food Coalition with the Star Trek community. The gag for me is obviously twofold. One, of course, I'm interested in raising awareness and raising revenue for what I think is a tremendous organization that does great work in the community. But I'm also really interested in the nature of how the Star Trek community writ large can kind of gather together to talk about what it means to give back to the community. Obviously, the hook has to be the fun aspect of coming to a digital convention, hang in your pajamas, eat popcorn, meet all sorts of cool people. But we do want to keep weaving into the conversation every time we get together bits and bobs about why Star Trek is what it is and what its mission is and what its, you know, challenges are. How do you get from here to this perfectible universe that Roddenberry envisioned? What is it that's required of all of us to make that happen? Those are great questions. Last year's event had so many highlights for me as a Star Trek fan. I ended up donating multiple times just because the because I was enjoying it so much and I believe in the cause so much. So one of the highlights in terms of the content of Trek Talks last year, I loved things like get the writers together, get the directors together, get the production designers together. What kinds of groupings and panels do you have planned for this year that you can talk about? Well, ironically, I will say that, you know, we we tried as best we could to kind of say, tell us what you thought, fans and friends. Um, there were people who loved the panels. There were people who wanted to hear more from individuals. So this year, and I think the gag is in all candor that every year we'll probably mix it up a little bit. This year we have four panels. One of them is about what we call science fact to science fiction or science fiction to science fact, in which we'll talk to a number of people who've got the scientific background to actually talk about Star Trek's grounding in the sciences. We'll have a panel that is hosted and created by the Sci-Fi Sisters, which will be an appreciation of Nichelle's work and legacy. We'll have a panel that is uh, devoted to what we did last year, which is called Trektivism, which is essentially about the nature of how some people in the track community are giving back and what it is that impelled them to give back, including Heidi Roddenberry, who will talk about the work of the uh, foundation itself. But we will also have a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews, which is something we didn't do as much of last year. And to a certain extent, that's also because there were certain people that we could get 
only as part of a, a one-on-one experience. So uh-huh. Amsterdam Mount is coming, Scott Bakula is coming, just like last year we had Jerry Ryan. It's not that they aren't happy to be part of a panel, but I think it's e- easier sometimes for the people who are, you know, the the true mucky mucks of Star Trek to kind of envision um, a conversation than being part of a, a group chinwag. I think people are hankering for Scott Bakula for sure because he doesn't talk about these things a lot, yeah. and so that makes total sense. Yeah, and and you know, I have to say, I'm deeply appreciative for Scott. Years ago, when the show was on the air, I was also the uh, head of the development committee of an organization called the AIDS Service Center, and Scott very graciously appeared at two of our fundraising events then including one which turned out to be quite the clusterfuck through no uh, candidly fault of mine, but we had hired somebody to be the event coordinator and they had, um, without consulting us, shifted Scott from uh, entertaining at the beginning of the evening to entertaining at the end of the evening for a very special small group of people who paid an additional fee. So by the end of the evening, it was like it was down to six people who were freezing cold, and poor Scott had to stay through the whole thing. So I always thought, oh, I don't think Scott's ever going to talk to me again. <laughs> so um, very gracious of him to agree to do this. I'm, I'm hoping he's forgotten that experience. God knows I haven't. <laughs> well, he did, he did come back, so there's that. Came back, yes. Yes, he did. This made me very happy. I got I got a call from a, a, from from Dominic. Said, why, why didn't I get invited to Trek Talks? <laughs> nice, nice. Also, with all these, there you know various celebrity Star Trek podcasts now. And yes. I feel like that's a great like I'm a I'm a Delta Flyers uh, addict. I listen to that one all the time. But um, the Shuttle Pod guys and Delta yep. Flyers and Sirach has one and it's. Yep. And Sirach is coming this year, and, yes. and Dominic and Connor, because they came last year, I mean, some of them, of course, the challenge, you know, as any convention year outside of creation, creation just invites everybody and everybody comes. Most most conventions and events of this nature, we have to kind of, you know, okay, we can't, we can't have everybody, there's not enough time, and we also want to make sure that this year's roster has some, you know, some surprises based on, you can't have the same people again and again and again and again and again. Right. Um, fortunately, there are uh, four gajillion Star Trek shows on the air right now. So yes. uh, over the long arc of time, I feel like, you know, there's a pretty damn big pool of folks that we'll be able to draw on. Um, do you have um, like directors again and designers and writers? Oh, yes. We have one additional panel, which is some of the behind the scenes design talent. Um uh, Dan Curry will be there. The Akutas will be there. David Blass will be there. That will oh, sort of cool. sort of be about you know the the making of Star Trek. No directors produces the. Uh, we do have the um, Hagemans will be here this year. Uh, Mike McMahon will be here this year. Um, and if uh, we always have a little bit of a um, you know because you can't be absolutely certain that somebody's not going to oversleep or forget. So we had a couple of, you know, uh, people in reserve, including David Livingston, who will, he's also a member of the board of the Hollywood Food Coalition and, and one of the co-producers of this event, step in for a an interview if we need him. Good. Uh, I was going to say he should get his own panel. He has so many fantastic stories. He, he does indeed. He's he's um he's uh he's he's shyer than you'd think. Oh like, come on, David, get out, get out there. No, no, this is part of my you know, David and I David, I should tell you, um came to the Hollywood Food Coalition in part because he had started taking these absolutely gorgeous um photographs, color photographs of, of people experiencing homelessness. And he he had cause to get in touch with a bunch of folks including myself to say that he was going to do an exhibition of the work and I, I i thought these photos in part because he super saturated them with color were so vibrant and gave you a very different sense of what it is to experience homelessness as opposed to the standard issue black and white photos that kind of really underline the you know the the despair what what david's pictures did in a weird way was sort of say all life is vibrant everybody is leading a vibrant life and it's as 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 demanding as homelessness is do not look at people from this scrim of let me put my tragedy glasses on now um and i, I thought they were quite meaningful 
you know, he, he, um, we as a not-for-profit, obviously, we have to really be very, very mindful of of rules and regulations governing people's privacy. So, so th- they were not incorporated into any of the work we do. But I introduced David to our organization, and he ha- he joined and has been an invaluable asset. And we would not be doing this event without his um, without his efforts. He's more behind the scenes than I am, part because I'm an actor and a loudmouth. But there's no way this happens without David's um, without David's tireless efforts. Yeah, I've seen him posting about it quite a bit too. It's funny to think of a shy director, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, there's a reason some people don't get in front of the camera. I mean, I... no, I mean, I get it. Like, I'm a producer, and so that's my. I'm like, I stay on my side. But like, a director has to be very bossy and own the room. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. And I, <laughs> I, I believe me, the number of times at meetings, you know, at board meetings, especially when it's like, um, and David, do you have anything to say? All right. Well, let me get into some of my enterprise questions. Sure. As has always been the case on Star Trek today, Star Trek shows, what's happening today really works its way into those shows as they're being written and produced. So do you think like had enterprise come out at a different time, significantly not around 9-11? Do you think the tone of the show and especially those later seasons would have been different? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, one thing that happened is, um, you know, Manikata was brought on who, who subsequently, I believe it was subsequently went on to write for 24 and he wrote some of my very favorite episodes. Um, but I also think, you know, Manny, who I've worked with on a number of occasions has a different sensibility, uh, certainly than I do. And I think probably somewhat different sensibility than some of the star trek creators so some of the third season i think was um in my opinion given the nature of what happened on 9 11 um leaning towards a um uh, a, a philosophy that didn't strike me necessarily as ultimately the star trek philosophy and I, I say this with all due respect and deference to manny again i think he wrote some of the best shows we did um there was an episode in which I thought, you know, the question of whether or not it was legitimate for Scott, our captain, to throw somebody into space because they weren't coughing up the goods. I thought, you know, I mean, it was presented as a moral dilemma, fair, but it was a moral dilemma that was very much the same moral dilemma that kind of undercut 24. And it was very much in our consciousness at the time. It was like, do the ends justify the means? Is it okay to waterboard somebody? I, I you know, as a, as a, candidly as a leftist um was uncomfortable by aspects of season three and, and i i you know again i say that with all due respect for manny's enormous uh, talents and i think you know again some of those episodes were the best we did similitude i think the one in which we yeah. trip we needed the tension of uh, a serialized show i think the show generally particularly in the second season was kind of drifty in that respect it it i know uh, strange new worlds works very well with standalone episodes i didn't think we were doing terribly well with standalone episodes so i appreciated the tension of the chase and the urgency of the third season but my 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 problem with the giant horrible lizard creatures have attacked earth and slaughtered us and we will go get them and we will kill them and it doesn't matter nothing's going to stop us was like you know yeah, and then we invaded Iraq. It's so funny because the prevailing sentiment, which I've never agreed with, is that those later seasons are stronger. And I was always sort of more interested in the earlier, like, explore a little bit more of the joy and confusion of exploration versus, again, the killing of. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I, I will say, and in fairness, and this has been pointed out to me, that the end of the third season, you know, it was revealed that the Zindi too were being manipulated. And you could argue that, you know, there was a sort of, um, I won't say anti-capitalist viewpoint, but a, a, a certainly a, perhaps an anti-colonialist viewpoint being expressed, which is always a thing that I've appreciated about Manny. Manny's an extremely smart guy. He had an episode that was clearly taking on the Israeli palestinian issue um and and from an atheist point of view saying you know a pox on both of your houses to the extent that religion interferes with your capacity to actually get along so 
I do really, I know I said this about 18 times, I have a tremendous amount of respect for what Manny did and what I thought he was trying to achieve. I, I tend to kind of have complicated feelings about the third season, less the fourth. I think the fourth kind of found that sweet spot where it was, you know, of course we were you know, not really kind of canceled by then. It was clear there was a lot more freedom in terms of, you know, Manny could do whatever he wanted to do. And I'll say one last thing. I, I realize you've asked one question. I've given you 18 answers. Oh, no, that's great, though. <laughs> um, my my feeling about the show is, and you said it, I think, you know, that it's both joyful and confusing. It, the first ship, the first crew, there were things that I liked. I liked the fact that the weapons malfunctioned. I liked the fact that we were afraid to transport. I liked the fact that, you know, there was a sense of like, should we go? Should we stay? What would you I kind of felt they got away from that too quickly. To me, and this is a story I tell a lot because I think it sort of, to me, kind of captures what was problematic. There was an episode early on, and I used to try and get the first drafts of the script because I wasn't always used so much. So I would try and go and skedaddle and do other gigs during those episodes. They were very gracious. They let me do that. So I try and get the first script on the slide to see if I was going to be used. There was an episode early on, somebody, redshirt, is beamed back up, and his ass is where his head should be. Oh, my God, his ass is where his head should be. I thought, oh, that's great. By the time we actually got to the shooting script, he's beamed up, and there's a twig sticking out of his ear. The doctor would just, <laughs> you know, trim that off. That was, I thought, one of the problems. It's like, you know, if you go, if you watch a streaming show today, you don't know whether the character is going to get killed or not. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I think Star Trek was right on that line in terms of television history where they weren't quite fish and they weren't quite foul. They were still kind of your daddy's Star Trek, and and yet they were wanting to edge into more um, tricky territory. And I don't think they ever found that, you know, it's a hard line, really hard line. I would have loved to have seen, and I say this as a an actor and not necessarily as a Star Trek fan, I would have loved to have seen them really kind of just change certain signatures about the show, uh, like overlapping dialogue. You know, I would have loved to have seen like, what if you have a little bit more Robert Altman, where when you actually are having a conversation, people interrupt each other. It's like, don't shut up. We got to no. Well, you don't tell me to shut up. You know, there are aspects of of Star Trek. It's like if you're turning the channel, you know, it's Star Trek in a second. The visual signature, the lighting, the sound, the pristine look. I would have liked to have seen more mess. But that's my taste. Yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. I mean, people are very can be very curmudgeonly about their Star Trek. Yes. And they and they do want it pristine and they don't want the over you know, they want it clean and perfect. I mean, you never know whether or not that is what people want or it's what they've gotten accustomed to having. Right. Or it's what just what the loudest people want and not really what everybody wants. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's such a diverse it's such a diverse fan base. And I, I think the one thing that to me that is is unarguably true is that the nature of how this franchise manages to tell stories that are relevant to what we're experiencing, which is why people like science fiction through a, 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 an interesting lens. You know, you can kind of like Again, I thought it was very interesting that Manny told a story that was fundamentally about the Palestinian slash Israeli issue. And he did it in a way that never alluded to, you know, <laughs> that at all. That's, I think, the storytelling, I think, is what the visual signature and other aspects aesthetically, I sometimes think, you know, people shouldn't focus so much on that. I don't think, I think there's a lot more play in that world than than sometimes um then we we are prepared to accept that the fans would go along with but right you know. and some of that's changing with modern treks and people willing to do other things yeah. like along those lines like do you think if enterprise were being made today do you think flocks would have had husbands as well as wives i i winked as best i could <laughs> not yes, given the lines my, I play. I tried to play it with enough of a raised eyebrow, eyebrow to suggest just that. I mean that that was very much my you know goal. I frequently call myself the first you know polyamorous Star Trek character, first bisexual Star Trek character. I always thought that you know 
the husbands got together, the wives got together, the husbands and the wives, the husbands and the wives and the sisters and the brothers. I mean, it was an interesting culture in that they, you know, they were cheap to jowl. So they had to have very strict rules about touching non-sexually. You know, they, nobody, you don't go around slapping people on the back under Nobula. Right. And there seemed to me like very strict courtship rules. But when the courtship was su successfully effectuated, nobody gets it on like the Denobia. <laughs> that was my feeling. Did that come up as something people talked about and then just said, we can't do it? Was that ever discussed? Um, you know, I, unlike Bob Picardo, who's a dear friend and I make fun of him all the time, uh, Bob Picardo, I think, lurked behind the shrubbery to pop up and say, hey, oh, yeah. how about I sing opera? You <laughs> know, <laughs> that's not my, that's just, I, I won, it wasn't, I think, necessarily um, a show where that was as uh, available to us as actors. For instance, we were at that point um, under a, 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 an edict. No actor was going to learn how to direct on our show. Yeah. That was done. In the meantime, you had like Roxanne and Robbie like all over yeah, it directing. And that, exactly. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, it, it, whether or not that was, I don't think that was a reflection on our particular cast. I just think it was, yeah. you know, by the time our show was on, on UPN, a dying network, the ratings were in the toilet. The, the word from on high was you don't have the um, latitude that we we might have given you back when we felt the franchise was really healthy so to a certain extent i never really felt like you know and i i don't want this to sound snotty because i think rick and brandon were nothing but gracious to me i mean you know again they let me on episodes when i wasn't used go off and do other gigs I did a number of other shows during that time frame, and and that's very unusual if you're a regular on a show to get yeah. that kind of permission. Um, but I didn't really ever get the impression that it was like swing the door open and come on in, let's, let's hear it, let's hear it. And I was very, I was very reticent about it. I did not on that particular episode, which was I believe a night in sick bay when it was alluded to my, you know, my polyamorous background i did not get on the horn and say hey could we pull this out a little bit i mean could we make it clear i would really i just you know i think i might have mentioned to the director that it's like yeah i tell you what from my point of view the boys are getting it on and the girls are getting it on and i'm going to see if i can figure out how to do that just in the performance and some people say they got that but i think yeah I, I mean, know. there was enough of a hint that it made me want to ask the question. So, yeah, it was like, it was still yeah. like a little like, you know, what I always liked about him is you always kind of had the sense that he was like, had 18 jokes buried up his sleeve that he was keeping <laughs> himself, you know, <laughs> which I loved about Flops. You know, you mentioned UPN and it's something like Scott Bakula has been pretty critical of UPN. And I'm wondering if you agree with him that the show could have lasted longer or, or been better without it had it been somewhere else. Sure. I mean, und undeniable. But, you know, the thing is, the UPN was a dying network. I mean, it, it, it weirdly, you can look at it from two vantage points. I yes, we probably would have been better in a pre um, in, a, in a syndicated universe, which is what the other shows were. But syndication was kind of as a concept beginning to fade away. <laughs> so I don't know if that was going to be a feasibility. And two, if UPN could have interested other writers and producers to pitch shows then they might have been able to get rid of us they couldn't get rid of us they didn't have anything else so the reason we got four years is because what else was upn going to put on i mean they had wrestling and they had you know some kind of shows pitched to young people the, the network was schizophrenic it didn't have the support of cbs I, I don't even think it's a question of like blame to go around. It's just the nature of the world of television was beginning to change in that era. And we were one of those shows that was kind of on that cusp, just in terms of how Star Trek, you know, made it to the audience. The previous shows um, were either syndicated or on, I think Voyager was on UPN as well. Yeah, I'm... that was like when they launched, that was their, their yeah. flagship show. Yeah, and, and I, I I don't know, I'm not a student of this, but my guess is that probably the decision to put Voyager on UPN as opposed to keep it syndicated was a response to the fact that the nature of syndication was changing. And unfortunately, we didn't have streaming yet. So there was a little bit of like, a you know, well, we just fell right in the water trying to cross a bridge that didn't exist. 
And the other thing that happened with UPN, and this is, we went, Dominic and I went to a convention in San Antonio early on, early on, you know, the show had been on for, you know, a few months, six months, maybe. And uh, nobody was there. It was like, huh. No. And turned out that San Antonio, as one of the affiliate stations, um, was not airing Star Trek on Friday nights, because that's high school football night. And the reality is NBC, CBS, ABC, the affiliate station doesn't get to choose whether they're going to air or not air the slate of programs. They're airing them. UPN didn't even have the power to command their affiliate stations to air the product. That's how weak UPN was. And there was nowhere else to get it. It wasn't like, now we wait for it to show up on Hulu the next day. Yeah, that doesn't No, Or they would change it and, you know, themselves. If an affiliate station would say, Friday night, 10 o'clock. Now we're going to air Monday night at 6 o'clock. I think that's some of it. I, I don't, however, think that any of that addresses the fact that the for the premiere episode, we got, I think, like 10 million. In the second episode, we got 2 million. So people didn't, on some level, dig it. Whether it was Star Trek fatigue, whether or not people were wanting something that was either too, you know, that was 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 unique or whether they felt that we were actually kind of off the reservation too much. I don't know. But I, I think the writing on one level was on the wall. I've been on a bunch of shows where it's like I was on a show called The Nine, which was short lived and everybody thought it was going to be great. And the premiere, the first half of the show, one hour drama. Eight million, nine million, second half, two million people, vote, you know, and it's like the next day, it's like, I'm sorry, you can uh, all the feel good talk. It's like we bombed. We're out. That's the reality. The fact that we went four seasons to me is the miracle. And Scott had a large role to play. I mean, I know I don't know all the particulars, but I know he kind of, you know, like went in there and said, come on, come on. To the <laughs> powers that be. I didn't see how that particular sausage got made, but. I also, as the guy who wore the rubber head, maybe had mixed feelings about the show. Like, you know, I think right. other people were universally sad that it didn't go seven. Oh, for me, it was like, oh, it's good. <laughs> yeah. No more 4 a.m. calls. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I like the character a lot. Don't get me wrong. And I really liked the other actors and, and um, appreciated my time on the show. But um, yeah, rubber head wearing ain't, uh, I don't know that I'd ever want to do it again. We heard a very interesting story recently from the actress Kim Rhodes, who was a guest star on yes. uh, I Love Her. She was on Voyager. And she said that Kate really took to her and wanted her to be on more Star Trek and that Brandon and Rick were wanted her for to pull. Yes, I heard I read that article too. On Enterprise. I think I wrote the article. I read that article. At the time, like obviously there was a you know, she was told she's the wrong body type, which she found out and knew meant you're too fat was the network focus on sex appeal something that everyone there was like super aware of and had to deal with in some way like how did that affect everybody in the cast um it certainly became readily apparent i mean you know watching the pilot you, you don't know as an actor um particularly i mean i was number seven on the call sheet you know i i mean i had episodes where i had more to do but generally speaking i wasn't used a ton um i 90 percent of what was uh you know as i say how the sausage is getting made was like sure flying right over my head but yeah you watch the pilot it's like okay all right you know it, it, there's we don't even have a men's room and a women's room i mean come on it's like <laughs> all right um hey you know, we weren't the first and we won't be the last show. I mean, I say this as an old fat actor. It's like, you know, I mean, if you've got eight series regulars. Eight series regulars are going to be sexy, you know, nowadays. Yeah. Even the old guys have to be sexy. Um, a body type. It's like, yeah, I believe me. I hear you. I'm I'm you know, I, I, I'm the number of parts, the number of parts that I have auditioned for. Where I know going in, it's like, I'll do a kick-ass audition, and I ain't getting this fucking part. I'm carrying 40 extra pounds around. I'm a four-eyed, balding, gap-toothed, you know, <laughs> ain't no fucking way. Nobody wants to look at this every week. 
I'll play, you know, within this strange realm of characters I play. I'll play nuts, I'll play sociopaths, I'll play geeks, I'll play losers, I'll play oddballs, because the world is not going to invest sexuality in a guy that looks like me. Um, that's just, that's one of the things you sign off on, and I don't mean to point this at Kim. I love Kim. I've met her a couple times, and she's a wonderful actress. You simply cannot be in this industry without on some level making your peace with the fact that it is a visual industry and there is a deep corruption at the heart of the nature of the way we as human beings um, uh, emphasize physical beauty. And this industry makes its bucks on it. Jim Broadbent, the wonderful actor Jim Broadbent, said that you as an actor, your instrument is you. It's you. If you're fat, that's your instrument. If you're bald, that's your instrument. If you're blind, that's your instrument. If you're whatever you are, that's your instrument. You can be the kind of actor who tries to change your instrument to become more marketable, or you can be the kind of actor who lives in his instrument. And I'm the latter, you know, but I'm very cognizant of what that meant in terms of my career opportunities. Do you remember the cast reacting to having to do all those decontamination scenes like were people joking about it like what was the I was I know I was joking about it I was always saying well hey I got blue underpants when do I get to and they I did actually made a made a joke one time I think to um who was it Chris Black at a party I said come on Chris come on when am I going to run around in my underpants and I he said something like what if you run around without your underpants I said on bring it on motherfucker so the Chris left the scene in the third season. There I am strutting my stuff. If you recall, that was so great. Um, and I what did, was, yeah, and I, I what you were know, you wearing for that filming of that? I think I was wearing a, a little one of those ridiculous little cod pieces that you uh, you know men have to wear. I did I did uh, True Blood for uh, a number of seasons. And in the second season of True Blood, there's a sorceress played by Michelle Forbes, the wonderful actress. Oh, Michelle. I love her. I love her, too. And she's a great person, too. Uh, so Michelle has the entire community in her thrall. And we are all, because she feeds off of carnal energy, we are all engaged in basically a season-long orgy. <laughs> so and I was the coroner. So every every episode, I'd be like, I'd be humping a tree or I'd be taking a dog or, you know, the bar wench and I would be having at it. And I'd come home <laughs> from work and Bonnie would say, what'd you do today? It's like, I'm going to rub chocolate cake on some woman's breasts. What'd you do today? <laughs> uh, I took it up the ass from some stevedore. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> she would always roll her eyes. It's like, it's not fun. Not at all. Very unpleasant, in fact. Well, in Enterprise, you had to do with all this like makeup applied to your body, which must have been an interesting process. Just in those two shows, and there were two episodes. One in which, uh, well, actually, no, I guess you could say there were three. There was an episode where I was walking around naked. There was an episode when uh, when Paul goes through Pompar, and we're locked in the decon chamber together. And I won't satisfy her, which is like, <laughs> you know, talk about <laughs> really, gone. I think I think Doctor Flocks would be would be up for that, uh, and then there was an episode in which I they they uh, night in the sick bay when I think you see my toenails and my long tongue and what have you. Yeah. Um, yes. Any additional makeup application above and beyond the regular makeup application is like just feels punitive. So <laughs> you're in the chair for two and a half hours to begin with, and that tags on another forty five minutes. So. Mind you, at least I wasn't a you know one of those guys who had a mouthpiece. I I always felt badly for Armin. Oh yeah, the teeth, and he couldn't hear anything either. Like uh, yeah, I mean there are, there are. I, I had it relatively easy, and I think to a certain extent by the time they got to uh, probably Voyager, after a Deep Space, after Odo, and you know after Armin, I think they realized, hey, you know we're trying to work less inhumane hours you, you, there's a law of diminishing returns for an actor that's got to kind of spend the entire day in, in elaborate prosthetics and it's expensive because you're having to pay now you know in addition to the the what we what i always called couch money which is a forced call when you've wrapped the night before and you know you got to come in the next day and you don't get your turnaround and it's like 950 clams it's like i just bought a new sofa um, they wanted to eliminate forced calls. So I think they made my species um, considerably <laughs> less. Yeah, less elaborate. I had a chin, I had some ears. Most of the time, frankly, it's the painting. And the makeup's 
you know, extraordinary on that on that franchise and, and an extraordinary team of people. But it's extremely, particularly going from film to digital when the camera's picking up every goddamn pore. So they had to spend a lot of very careful time laying in the striations and what have you. Yeah, I was struck as I was re-watching a lot of Enterprise over the last few days, like how gorgeous that show is. It's beautiful. Yeah, and I love the design of the, of the, of the show, I mean, of the set, which is one of the things that kind of, for me, when I first kind of, we were introduced to the, you know, the premise and we were given a set tour, it was like, it looked like a submarine, like run silent, run deep. And they said, this is supposed to be the first ship, so it feels more claustrophobic. It feels a little more like, you know, I thought, great, great. I hope that kind of manifests itself. I'm leeching people. Again, the weapons don't work, yada, yada, yada. That's where I kind of felt like some of the hook they didn't quite own all the way through. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like early on as a doctor, it's like, I love the fact this guy, he believes in potions and powders and leeching. And, you know, it's like, but but the nature of television is such that within a matter of episodes, it's like, "Mm, you have cancer. Mm, I've cured you with my magic little box. And it's like, eh, one of the things that always kind of like, I think was tricky about Star Trek is pulling a techno fix out of the box to get to the end of an episode sometimes is sort of like where you kind of go, or or the phaser pistol, uh, is where you kind of go, eh, that's not when you're at your best. I mean, if you're comfortable talking about this, this is up to you. One of the things about Enterprise that was challenging for me as a viewer yes. was that it it did feel retro in terms of women. Yes, absolutely. Like, I felt like there was a lot of Voyager sort of backlash involved. I don't know if you would agree with that. I'm not enough of a student to necessarily know what that means, Voyager backlash. Um, Well, just that Voyager had female captain who was a very, very strong character. And the other star was Jerry Ryan, a seven. They had Roxanne. So women and with chief engineer. So women, for the first time in Star Trek, really Hmm. were in charge and quite prominent and had... We're in every main story, pretty much. Gotcha. And and watching Enterprise, it felt like there had been, felt like I kept wondering, were there fans who said enough with the women? Like, it's sort of, you know, and because T'Pol as the main female character was also in the most ridiculous outfit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, the th- I get, and I that's why I sort of wanted to ask you to clarify, because I mean, I know that one of the things that was a bone of contention, and again, I have... Um, I'm a, I like to read. That's the thing I like the most. So I don't tend to even watch a ton of television. So although I tried to kind of get myself a little bit hooked into the Star Trek world and watch a little bit and, and bits and pieces of all the shows, I'm still nowhere near as I'm I'm hep to what I believe Star Trek stands for. And I really appreciate its ethos. I'm not as hep to the intricacies of the individual series and the episodes. What I did know was that the whole uh, introduction of Jerry Ryan was itself a bone of contention because that was an attempt to kind of sex up the show in the latter half. And it seemed to have worked from my understanding, which is what I think led, you know, oh, for it, sure. it, it, to it, to, to Paul taking nothing away from Joe. I think she actually did a very nice job, uh, especially over the arc of four years, really finding a way to kind of get into her much more. I mean, you know, Spock is half human, so he's, he's got a little bit more room to play. I think to Paul, had to be and and Joe had to be or felt she had to be more straitjacketed in terms of what kind of emotional range she had within the space she was was allowed to move. I think she actually did very nice and nuanced work. Undeniably, they've put her in like you know blah 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 boom suits and they got her running around you know half naked all the time. She's on the cover of Maxim magazine. Yeah, um, you know. I, I, but again, I'd go back to my earlier point, which is. Star Trek is still a television show and every television show and every movie traffics in sexuality and it traffics in the exploitation of both women and men. Connor's running around in his underpants all the time, too. And for the most part, all the beefcakery, you know, which is one of the things that I also find is sort of like, you know, a little bit eye rolling is the number of times like, you know, Kurt's got to take his shirt off or the number of times, you know, it's got to have to be, you know, like da 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 da. I think of all the shows, the one that maybe was the most successful at not forcing the captain into being an action adventure hero was was probably Next Gen because they had Picard. And yeah. he was, you know, again, I'm not a huge student of Star Trek, 
But what I appreciated about that choice was to say, you've become captain because you're the smartest fucking guy in the world and because yeah. you've got diplomatic skills. You know, he's not there to have fistfights. He's there to he's there to problem solve. Um, it, it, it's, you know, some of what I think was going on with our show is they wanted to find a way to kind of um, flashback to aspects of the original show that were popular, which were rooted in something a little bit more uh, traditional. I mean, witness the fact that we had a triangular relationship at the top between uh, the captain to Paul and Trip, and that there was even, I think, some sort of like, you know, I don't even know what they knew, whether in those first two years it was going to be the captain and Paul who were maybe going to try and get together, right. you know. Um, far be it for me to kind of point the finger at that show, our show particularly, I would say culturally, that's television. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's a difference between, like, being sexy. Where I mean, Shatner was the first sex object on Star Trek. Ahead of all those women, really, because he was constantly, like, ripping off that shirt. And, yeah, offering, all, and actually, all, offering all those women with the mini skirts and the, you know, I, I mean, know. Deanna Troy. I mean, has there ever not been a, I mean, I got to wear pajamas. Nobody's trying to, like, you know, mold the costume to my taut body. <laughs> But that is that is unusual on Star Trek for men and women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, difference between sexy, which is TV, and then a certain sexism, which I, I did feel watching it. I no, I, yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I don't dispute that. I mean, I don't dispute that. I it was largely a male writing room that comes to that as an actor. You know, because I I will frequently go back and forth between putting a cultural critic hat on and then putting an actor hat on. My actor hat on that show was that, again, 90% of what was at issue was so like, you know, what I liked about this character was that my character kind of floated in, kind of, you know, had an ironic sensibility, could cock a snoot at all of it, including the sort of sexism, you know, and the and the and the retro shit, you know, and then wander out again. So I I thought it was like, you know, and I did make a bajillion jokes about like, you know, <laughs> really? We're going to go in and, and oil each other down to the <laughs> camp contaminators. And I felt badly for Linda a little bit, too, because I yeah. think you know, Linda as the character who was sort of asked to be the most timid on a certain level. I, I I definitely can see looking that through a sexist lens. I could also just say that I think, you know, they, they, I mean, you know, and doubtless this is sexism, because if you tried to make a guy, you know, the guy who's like, you know, I, I, I they wouldn't have done it. So, yes, right. they turned that into the 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 the, the woman's shrinking role. I, I was glad they let that go more and more and more, but I don't know that they ever really quite found a way to bring Linda's potential strengths to the forefront. Yeah, and I feel like in the early seasons, they sort of pitted Topol and Hoshi against each other in weird, unnecessary ways when they're both interesting characters. Like Hoshi, her journey, like someone being terrified to go on a starship is not a weird point no. of view. Yeah. No. No, but it, but it's not a weird point of view. But I'm kind of responding to what you said, which I think is very interesting. That if you know, you only have two two women on the ship, and if yeah. one of them has to be the embodiment of what it is to be terrified, I can definitely see that that is a. Um, and I think you're right. That is perhaps unconsciously and perhaps consciously sexist. You just mentioned like Flock sort of drifting in and out with his fun comments, but you also had a lot of really dramatic, intense stories on that show flocks went through a lot a lot of hellish stuff like which was more interesting to you to play and like when you look back at that character what do you remember the most um the sensibility remains the same i mean whether or not he's in a pickle or whether or not he's in a scene where he's you know more amused the scene on one level where the captain comes in and says save my beagle it's like you know <laughs> all right you want to spend the night here that's fine I I enjoyed those scenes a lot because I think at his heart, Flox goes on a suicide mission. I mean, why this guy says, sure, I'll go along. First time you've ever gone into space. I have no idea who the crew is. My, you know, a betting man would say probably not going to make it out alive. 
I think that's sort of indicative of Flox's sensibility. So sometimes in the dramatic episodes, they want you to kind of drop into a way of being that signals alarm. There was a little part of me that always felt that, you know, in an ideal world, Flox's unflappability would be even greater than they allowed it to be. Because I think that's one of the things he signed off on, you know? I mean, I, I think it's very, we have Westerners, human beings, we have our own particular relationship to mortality. I think a different culture, and I think he's, you know, I didn't know enough about Denobulan culture, so I kind of just invented my own shit that never kind of came out. But my sense is that is in Denobulan culture, there's like a line at which point it's gravy from here on in. And when it's gravy from there on in, it's like, yeah, well, that's the worst that could happen. I'll get blown out of the sky, so it goes. <laughs> I do think he kept that sense of wonder and excitement. Like, I feel like he brought that every time he walked into the room. Yeah. Everybody was reminded the show is about exploration. Like, yeah. look at this guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I like that. I, there were moments when I wanted, when I felt like, you know, it's just, again, it is the nature of television. They're wanting, and I think they did a, a pretty good job, and I, I commend them for it. I'm only the actor. All I can do is say the fucking words. But generally speaking, I thought they they maintained, for the most part, a legitimate sense of, of Phlox the Outsider, who has curiosity, amusement, and fascination. There were times when I thought some of the dilemmas, particularly, I think, the one called the breach, where there's a representative from another species. These species have been kind of, you know, I watched that again because somebody had referenced it. And I and I, I thought I'm talking about this without remembering it clearly. So I watched it again. And it's 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 better than I remembered it. There were aspects of it that I felt like were somewhat kind of like hard for me to swallow down in terms of what I believed about Denobulan culture, that it was an imposition of a of a Western understanding of what race hatred would mean that wasn't necessarily e easily squared with the way I kind of took Denobulans to be. But, you know, that's that's maybe quibbling. There was never anything that they, I, I, I don't know that, save for the, the obvious thing that every Star Trek actor complains about. Times when they've given you a mouthful of gobbledygook and you don't have enough time to learn it. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, the blah, blah, blah's endocrine system is compromised by the, blah, 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 you know, with the protein bar. Is just given to, that kind of stuff. There's not a single Star Trek actor out there, I think, with maybe some exceptions that doesn't go fuck yeah <laughs> but you know I, I i didn't have as much of it as many people did and generally speaking in terms of the the dramatic to the comedic it was it's nice to play a character that you give you have that you know that wider range i mean that's unusual i i enjoyed it i always you know i i truly did always look forward to getting the script to see whether they were i was going to get to do much i mean i i never was at the point where it's like oh i hope i'm not in this I always wanted to be in it. I always wanted to be more involved in it than less involved in it. Well, with all of these actors from Enterprise and before returning to the franchise, tons of them. <laughs> um, have you yeah, thought you don't about see anybody from Enterprise going on any other? Well, YouTube, so. I mean, Mike McMahon's been talking about wanting to figure out how to work in Enterprise, actually. But okay, but well, that'd be good. Would you consider doing a live-action show as getting back in the makeup again? Do yeah, I don't know if I'd want to be a regular again, but I'd certainly go back as a guest star or recurring. Um, I mean, to be to be really honest, it's not the the makeup is tiring, but the thing that really is tough are the eyeballs. They put these gargantuan contact lenses in your eyes, and and they can't account for astigmatism because oh. they have to cover the entire eye. So you're kind of more or less blind all day. You can see, but you can't read. And oh. um, by the end of the day, it's why Ethan Phillips left the show a little bit early in the seventh season. Yeah. It, his eyes were just fucking killing him. So that's, it sounds stupid, but you know, the older you get, the more, and my wife and I have had a nice run. We have enough money. I don't need the dough. It's why I do a lot of, you know, volunteer stuff. So one, I'd have to feel like it was interesting. And two, I don't know that I could do the series regular route again. Now, 
these cable shows are not doing 22, 26 episodes. We yeah, they're doing like 10, 15, maybe. So yeah. So yeah, if it was a if it was a smaller arc, um, sure, of course. And you know, in an ideal world, they'll ask me to be on an animated show. Yeah, well, so that's I'm, uh, I mean, I know, like I said, Mike McMahon's been looking to do it. Have you been watching either of the animated shows? No, not really. I mean, I've watched I've watched bits and bobs. I'm uh, my wife and I have kind of like a, a fairly spare television diet. So we'll watch a show like we just caught up with Succession. We'll start another show. We'll watch it. Then we'll pick another show. But it means like I'm watching maybe, I don't know, three hours a week. And, wow. and, I, and so the rest of the time I might kind of poke in. I, I, I wanted to be a writer. I went to college to be a writer. It was my intention to be a writer. I just found that the discipline of writing was not something that I could quite, I couldn't quite do it. I, I was happy in the rehearsal hall. So I became a stage actor and from stage I wanted to make a buck. So I gravitated to film and television. But my first love is and always will be reading. And I'm very um, protective of my reading time. So I, I'm not as I'm not as hep to uh, I, 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 I had an agent once who said, why are you in this fucking business? Get out of my office. It's like, <laughs> I don't want to say. I, so I realize that sounds kind of snobby and I don't mean it to. I just, you know, it's like, well, that's what I like. It's like, yeah, it's not snobby. It's your preference. There are two rumors that I'm wondering if you can clarify. One is that you were asked to audition for one of the live action shows. Is yes, that, that is, that is I, I, you know, that's so funny. I think that was probably, uh, I was asked to audition for a, a small, potentially recurring character. And I think it was for a prodigy. I think it was the animated show. Um, and I, I didn't because candidly, if you're getting scale for voiceover work and you're not a name, so you don't get to kind of like, it's not a lot of money. I, I didn't pin this on the show. This is how this is how this industry works. Yeah. The casting director who doesn't necessarily know your whole biography, who doubtless didn't realize I was on a Star Trek show, just knows me as an actor and goes, oh, maybe John Billingsley will audition for this part. I said to my people, hey, maybe just let that casting office know I was on one of the Star Trek yeah. shows. I was a series regular. If they're ever interested in either having me reprise my character or or do something more substantive, happy to be asked. But I don't think I want to audition for a small part. And and that kind of became, you know, like the story about how I turned this thing down on on what I think he might have been Strange New Worlds. I can't remember. I think they won kind of miss. It was probably I misspoke. <laughs> Because I I can't remember all the names of the shows. I probably meant Prodigy, and and I possibly said Strange New Worlds, but in any case, uh, no, that is not. That is a bit of a. There's enough truth to it. Orville, I had to audition for Orville uh, in the episode I was in with Bob Picardo, and again, I think it's because it's not as if that part is necessarily a part that calls out for a Star Trek actor to do it. So the casting director, who's got the assignment to cast this episode calls me probably not even knowing I had been in Star Trek. And I knew that. And I thought, I'll just audition. And I you know, put some time in. I auditioned well. Doubtless it gets in front of Seth MacFarlane. And he goes, oh, oh, sure. I know that guy. Yeah. But it's not, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems weird to me that a casting director on Orville or Prodigy or any of those shows wouldn't know that about you. Well, I they're I mean, so tuned into the whole universe, you know. Maybe like, I mean some some are and some aren't though. I you know I I can't speak for the entire casting community, but you know from from, <laughs> from if you're from a casting director's perspective, you're casting maybe you know multiple shows and you're bidding on a show and you get the show and yeah you may have some awareness of of you know some of the major names but you may not actually go all the way back into the archives and know every show that's ever been done and all the actors on it and enterprise was kind of the redheaded stepsister of star trek and i think it 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 does fall not as much now because it's come back in streaming but still, I'd say it falls a little bit into um, the, the 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 you know <laughs> a, a little bit of a of a of a cranny, a little bit of a nook in terms of people's um, remembering. 
and an appreciation of of what went before. I, I mean, I I don't I, that that could be entirely wrong, but I will say those are two instances in which I was asked to audition, and and nobody seemed to know that I had been. Oh, weird. I mean, the Orville too, because they love. You love Star Trek so much, and that was obviously like and, what inspired the whole creation of the show. And apparently, Seth MacFarlane does a mean Dr. Phlox impersonation, <laughs> which I was repeatedly, because he was on the set all the time, trying to get him to do, and he wouldn't do. Oh. And I tried to get Doc, I tried to get Seth to do uh, track talks, and I could never, you know, he's one, he's like the great white whale. It's like, he's so I'm busy, gonna... too, though. He's, I feel like he doesn't sleep. I don't think he, he closes his eyes. I'm sure he doesn't. I mean, the, the, that episode, you know, I mean, he's the actor in it. And he's also, you know, the, the wonderful director who, who I, whose name is escaping me, who became one of the showrunners. Um, I'm sure you know him. He was one of the guys behind 24. Um, uh, he was a 24 guy. He he directed and, and produced a, a goatee. Oh, God, this is awful. How am I not remembering his name? I know. I was a 24 fan, too. So. Um, well, anyway, he went, he moved over to Orville and he's directing this episode. Great guy. I'd worked with him on 24. Really nice guy. Kassar, John Kassar? Yeah, John, John Kassar. Exactly. Um, so, so John is, you know, and I love John and, but Seth is there like every beat, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, obviously it comes out of deep love and, and, uh, but uh, there's a part of me that's thinking, go home. You're not in today. What are you doing? <laughs> My wife was just, she's a woman named Bonnie Friderisi, Bonita Friderisi. Um, and I adore. She just did an episode of 911 Lone Star. And similarly, it's like the director, but at home on his like screen, watching everything is the showrunner who is there every step of the way. Some of it is that you don't get to you don't get to be a showrunner if you are not a micromanager. I mean, the nature of the job is such that it's like you know, uh, <laughs> every finger and every pie. Which is why I'm very happy that I am just a, a big old fat character actor. <laughs> it's a crazy. A I mean, in in Seth's case, it really is his baby. Like the Orville is. I think he directed, if not everything last season, most of it. So. Which is, I mean, I mean, it's hard enough to be number one. Yeah, directed too, and and then he's got, you know, I, some people have a simply a superhuman a, a combination of of talent, ambition, and energy. Yeah, he's a musician too. I mean, like a real musician. Like it's yeah. nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. I mean, it is. It is. A, it is remarkable. So there are fans who think that the new area of streaming could find a way to bring back enterprise in some way. Do you see any way that that could no. happen? No, I mean, I, I, uh, okay. First solve trip is dead to the Ugh. actress who played to Paul is not coming back to television. She has three children. She's retired. Um, Scott, I don't see doing it. I mean, Scott's got another show on now, you know, I, I just start there. But beyond that, you have to have somebody who's like, you know, burning to tell those stories. And that's a, you know, that's a, um, the McMahons or the whoever. I, I I hear the fans interested, but but you, you, it ain't going to happen without like somebody saying, without an Alex Kurtzman saying, I loved Enterprise and I want it to continue. And I don't see that person emerging. Right. Or like a Terry Metalis advocate for Next Generation or something. Yeah. Exactly. And even then, you still have to find a way to pitch the product. Somebody's got to agree to put millions of dollars into making every episode of it. Uh, I just don't, I, I think, I don't think that's likely. What you talked about earlier about maybe um, enough appreciation on some people's parts for those aspects of the show that they like to bring some of the characters back the way, you know, that, that happened in Picard. That seems more more feasible to me. Um, I'm the only one probably still alive, however. <laughs> no villains are very long lived. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> I know there are a lot of ways they could get you onto Lower Decks or Prodigy. Yeah. I actually have been kind of, you know, I've been doing a lot of podcasts primarily to promote um, track talks, or as my wife would say, you go to the opening of a fucking envelope, you whore. <laughs> all right, all right. That's enough out of you. But I 
have frequently pitched Old Fat Flocks, which is an hour. And Old Fat Flocks, this is how it begins. Old Fat Flocks is sitting on a box. Well, back when I was on Enterprise, he used to have all sorts of things happening. Here's a story to tell you about. So we're entering into hyperdrive. Flashback <laughs> music. And you see all these young people running around in their blue underpants, you know. And then at the very end of it, it comes back to me. Well, that's it. Stay tuned next week for another episode of Old Fat Flocks. <laughs> and I'd be one on the call sheet. I get well paid. I'd only have to wear the rubber head one day a week. You'll be shocked to hear that 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 it not no one has expressed interest in making that program. There's still a million ways to even to do that, even or something else. With I, there, politics, with prodigy, you know, the kids yeah. are learning about things and they're, yeah. they're just... Yeah, I, I would love it if they found out that Flocks is still around and he's just like this old curmudgeon you shit you're talking about back when I was... Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was, I hope Mike McMahon that takes you up on that because... Well, I, I hope so too. I hope so too. I, that that and that and the other thing that I've tried to introduce into the franchise is that, that, that he was Phil Flocks. I, that, Phil Flocks! How you doing? Phil Flocks! <laughs> I've been calling myself Phil Flocks now for 25 years, and I, I, I'm hoping that it's eventually kind of sneak. It sneaks into canon through the back door, and nobody's aware that it was just me. If he becomes a used car salesman, that's his perfect name. Exactly. For Phil Flocks. <laughs> exactly. Used car salesman. I'm running for Congress. Phil Flocks. Yeah. Phil Flocks. <laughs> oh, perfect. For now, anyway. Yeah, I've been signing uh, my name <laughs> Phil Flocks for, for ages and ages and ages. Um, You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so oh, much. It's my pleasure. It's is there anything else you want to say about Trek Talks? This is to uh, raise the funding for an organization called the Hollywood Food Coalition, which I always want to make sure I, I do talk about because it's yeah. very dear to my heart. I've been um, associated with it for the past six years. It started 40 years ago. It's an organization that started by providing, providing food and additional services to people experiencing homelessness on the street. As we have grown and as we have elaborated that part of our program, serving a better meal, more options, more choice, more services. We collaborate with the UCLA that brings a dental van, vision van, and general health van to our campus. We help connect people to housing programs, mental health programs, et cetera. But the other thing we started doing a few years back is rescuing more and more food. And my wife and I kind of began to kick that off a little bit more aggressively by creating something called the Pickup Artists. It was actors, largely, not entirely and directors who would go to various sets all over town and take the food from craft service tables and take the food from after meals. And we so overwhelmed our kitchen with this amazing food. You know, we're bringing in tri-tip and roast chicken and, you know, fresh peas and great produce. And we thought we still, we, we cannot let this food go to waste. So we started sharing it with other organizations. And out of that emerged what we now call the exchange program. So we now rescue about 2 million pounds of food a year and we share it with other not-for-profits that have their own missions that are rooted in helping people on the ground. But what we're trying to do is buttress and augment the quality of their meal program so they can provide better service. And lastly, we sit at a lot of community tables where we collectively, with other not-for-profits, attempt to say, what is it that we can only do together? Plant more gardens, put more vehicles on the street to pick up more food, refrigerate more food, store it mulch it more effectively, get it out to more communities. It's a collaborative effort. And all of those things make up the Hollywood Food Coalition. So I always like to talk about the work we do as, as elaborately as I can, because we are trying to do a whole bunch of stuff in the community. And what we're hoping to achieve is that it can kind of serve as a bit of a model and a, and a goad to other communities to be more aggressive in the way they think about food and how it can be shared. What I love about the Hollywood Food Coalition is that it is, it's boots on the ground. It's like we are, it's doing the work and it, like people are hungry, here's food and not 70 layers of nonsense in the middle. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, you gotta, as anybody, I always kind of like try and do a little thought experiment. It's like, imagine you're not eating tonight. Okay, just think about the fact you know you are not going to eat today. Think how much that's going to occupy your brain. Yeah. And now try it. Try going without food for a day. And tomorrow, try and do your work. Whatever your work is, just try and do your work, but don't eat. Nothing happens. You can't effectively complete a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program or consider applying for a job or summon up the energy to go get, you know, your documents cleared up so you can 
apply to a program to get off the street. Nothing happens until you get that step one on the rung of Maslow's pyramid of growth. You have to eat and you have to have a nice, good, healthy meal every day, at least one. The other thing I always really love about our program on the ground is that one, over the arc of 40 years, thousands of people have volunteered to come in and cook and serve. And it breaks down this artificial distinction between us and them. And I think that volunteerism itself is, to me, so critical to our our well-being as a civilization. The idea that we figure out ways as human beings to generously give of our time is something that has to be encouraged and encouraged and encouraged and encouraged for its own right. That Hebraic principle that virtue is its own reward, you know, to me, rests at the heart of of everything that I care about and that I think Star Trek ultimately is advocating. I keep coming back to Star Trek imagines there's a universe in which we put aside all of our stupid doctrinaire differences of religion and race and ethnicity and yada, yada, yada. And we've come to a conclusion that there are core values, progressive values, in my opinion, that are about how we improve our mutual lot by coming together and building coalitions. And I love that message. It's what it's what I love about Star Trek more than some of the other things we've talked about that I think are aesthetically problematic. And I think that's a lot of what the work that the Hollywood Food Coalition does. And it's why I wanted to, you know, kind of mush them together a little bit. Again, Laurie, that was such a great conversation. It was so dynamic. I like he's asking you questions and it was very honest. Um, you got, you know, quite frank with him about some of your views. So I'm glad we had a chance to share this with our listeners. Yeah, me too. He was willing to really talk about anything I wanted to bring up. So I really appreciated that. Plus, he's just funny and fun and a delight to listen to. And we really should talk more about Enterprise on this pod and on the website. I think that there's room for the new world of Star Trek for more Enterprise. I I think that we're going to see some of that, but he, I, I think he's downplaying the chances of that. I don't think there's going to be a season five of Enterprise, but I think that it can be brought into the new world of Star Trek in some way. Yeah, in more than just the way where they name something after Archer or whatever it is. I <laughs> I think there's, I think we'll see some of those folks in some form or another at some point. But what we will be seeing next is basically the entire cast of Star Trek The Next Generation starting next week with the first episode of Season 3 of Star Trek Picard. So until then, have a good week and we'll see you next Friday. See you next week. <laughs>